0: Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of violence against minors, insects, and discussions of suicide and contagious disease. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. (laughs) Augie didn't want to go to school. He didn't even want to be in Bengal, but his father told him he went where the queen bade him. Augie didn't like the queen. She was old and grumpy and forced him to watch cricket rather than football. He hated school and much preferred the woods surrounding it. On a clear night, he would sneak out of his dormitory and run into the forest under the pale moon. He loved how the trees and animals would go quiet as he stepped between them, as if they were waiting for his arrival. The wind whistled past his ears, tickling them with misty cold. It felt sometimes like the spirit of his long-dead mother was gently caressing his cheek. This didn't frighten him. On the contrary, it comforted him. In time, he felt more at home in Dow Hill Forest than anywhere else. Christmas time rolled around. Augie's father was coming to pick him up. They would visit his grandmother in London, and Augie would have to leave his beloved forest behind. Perhaps it would not be so bad. A new adventure. He crept out one last time, sitting in his real home listening to the silence and letting the whispers of his hopes for the future fill his mind. But that night, they were joined by another whisper, soft and melodic. It was his mother. She was dressed in white, the way she was in the picture his father kept in his study. She smiled softly and cupped his face, glowing with love. She brought her other hand up to Caressa's cheek and bent down to bring his forehead to hers. Then, she twisted off his head. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Dow Hill Forest in West Bengal, India, the scenic home to one of the country's oldest schools, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. we will take our first steps into the deathly
1: silent dow hill forest in just a moment this episode is brought to you by anytime fitness forget dark alleys and cemeteries for some the gym is the scariest place of all but it doesn't have to be
0: Kurseong, India sits in the northernmost part of West Bengal, up against the Himalayan hill region. Kursyong is about 20 miles from the much more notable city of Darjeeling, which is famous for the tea that bears its name. The small town is surrounded by a thick forest known as Dow Hill. Like much of the region, Dow Hill Forest is mostly made up of tall oak trees, with bamboo and ferns comprising much of the undergrowth. Many of the oaks are quite old and thick, but there are also parts of the forest where you can find long, thin trees packed close together to create an almost cathedral-like atmosphere. These sections of the woods amplify Dow Hill's strangeness. Though much of the region is a nature preserve, the misty timberland has an unnerving silence to it, as if nothing lives there at all. Kersiang is most known for its white orchids, which bloom on the hillside surrounding the town after a heavy monsoon season. The climate is surprisingly temperate, despite its proximity to Mount Everest. Kersiang's pleasant climate and picturesque views make it an ideal retreat in the summer months. Under the reign of the British Raj, these sorts of locations were called hill stations. Hill stations are settlements that sit at a higher elevation than their nearby geography. These towns were generally founded by European colonial rulers who used them to escape the heat on continents like Africa and Asia. Hill stations were built to imitate the occupying force's home country. So all the hill stations in India aim to be a Victorian home away from home. Kursyang was particularly successful in this and its proximity to a rail line made it a common destination for summer retreats. Its popularity also resulted in the founding of several schools in the town, including the Dowhill School for Girls and the Victoria School for Boys, whose foundation was laid in 1879. Set within the forest itself, both schools educated West Bengal's elite. India's continued occupation by the British from 1858 to 1947 meant that a majority of those students were the children of white officers or other imperial forces. The Victoria School has a long and storied history and is still in operation for much of the year, with a break between December and March. The school suffered from overcrowding in the early 20th century, and diseases like diphtheria were a major problem in the tight conditions. In 1905, bubonic plague ran so quickly through the student dormitories that the headmaster arranged for outdoor camps to be made up, to separate the boys and slow the contagion. The 200 students were divided into six camps within the forest, with one teacher supervising each camp. It would have been a little wilderness character-building exercise, if not for the reports of ghostly screams echoing through the forest and red eyes watching from the darkness. Ellis' father spent the winter impressing upon him, that he was to get the most out of his education at Victoria Boys School. So, Ellis decided to become a leader. Mr. Little didn't like that. The stodgy math tutor very much headed out for Ellis, especially on the cricket field. Ellis didn't understand why it mattered. A little cheating to get ahead was perfectly acceptable, according to his father. Mr. Little didn't agree. Nor did the headmaster. Ellis had the cricket bat turned against him to hit the point home. He was proud of himself for not crying out. He didn't let anyone see that he was hurt. He was fine. He was a leader. But nature would force him to prove it. (laughs) It started with a sniffle in the middle of the night. Ellis yelled at whoever was sneezing to cut it out. They were all trying to sleep. A handful of sneezes turned into a roomful of sneezes. Then came the hacking and gagging, the swelling, the smells. Some students would spend the whole night coughing so loudly it felt like their lungs were trying to leave their bodies. Others retched in the middle of the night, leaving the air smelling of hot acid and decay. They were dying. Ellis was sure of it. The number of students in the classroom continued to shrink until he was one of four. The headmaster wrote to his father, promising that his education would continue in spite of the circumstances. Their solution was small camps in the forest outside the school, far enough apart that the contagion couldn't spread. Ellis was stuck in Mr. Little's camp with several other boys. It was far from an ideal scenario. He did not want to be ruled by that tyrant. He would rather be the tyrant himself His first night in the camp, Ellis convinced the other boys that Mr. Little was not a normal school teacher. He was a monster. He feasted on the pain of boys like them. In order to keep the monster at bay, they needed to protect themselves by disobeying him at every turn. They staged small rebellions during the outdoor lectures. The boys took turns pretending to pass gas when Mr. Little spoke and refused to eat their food as long as he was in the tent. Ellis took particular delight in reminding Mr. Little of his previous attempts at discipline. Anytime Mr. Little started to get angry, Ellis would ask if they needed to fetch the headmaster to maintain order for him, since he was incapable of striking fear on his own. He needed authority to lean on. Ellis didn't. He had charisma. Mr. Little's hands curled into fists, but he knew just as well as Alice. He couldn't do anything. Punishments had to be documented. They had to be approved by the headmaster. Mr. Little had already played that card. He couldn't do it again so soon. Not without Alice's father hearing about it and crying vendetta. Mr. Little abandoned his plans for lecture and told the group he was going for a walk to clear his head. Ellis felt the surge of victory racing through his veins. He may be younger than Mr. Little, but he was just as smart. The sun was swallowed by the night sky. Mr. Little still wasn't back. The headmaster would replace him with another tutor, and Ellis would have to start his campaign all over again. He therefore decided that they would need to get Mr. Little back, even if it pained him to do so. Armed with small lanterns, Ellis and the other boys headed into the forest. To cover more ground, they decided to split up. The small dancing lights would be visible enough in the darkness to keep them aware of each other's positions. If all else failed, they could shout to each other. Ellis stomped through the woods. He didn't want to be chasing Mr. Little through the night, and he was beginning to suspect that the man had developed an unorthodox strategy of his own. Here, the teacher had the element of surprise. He could scare the boy straight with full deniability. Ellis found himself checking behind trees and squinting at every shape in the undergrowth, convinced that it was his rival. Branches snapped behind him. Ellis whirled so quickly that his lantern went out. He stuck his hand out in front of him and felt nothing but cold, misty air. He braced for some sort of sound, some wild thing waiting in the darkness, but there was only silence. Ellis shook his head, relit his lantern, and went back to walking. One of the boys called out that he was heading back but this was pointless. Mr. Little was just gone. Ellis told him to shut it. They'd only just started looking. Ellis' minion had been hundreds of feet away, but the boy's grumbled retort seemed to come from right behind him. Ellis turned his head slowly. He didn't see the dancing flame moving through the trees, but he could swear he heard the other boy's voice. He must have gotten turned around at some point. The trees were close here. Maybe they could cause echoes. The trees started to tilt sideways. Ellis struggled to get a safe foothold on the ground. A voice that certainly sounded like Mr. Little called him by name, asking him to come closer. Ellis stopped. This was a trap. He could no longer see the dancing lights of his fellow students. The noises from the camps had faded away. Ellis couldn't even remember which direction he'd come from. Footsteps came from behind him. Or, no, they were in front of him. They had to be. But as far as he could tell, the path in front of him was empty. He scanned the darkness, eyes straining. Then, between the trees... He saw it. A pair of glowing red eyes. Arms yanked him sideways. The forest was upside down for a brief moment before it righted itself again. Mr. Little's wrinkled hands clutched him tightly. The teacher's fingernails started to grow into sharp talons that dug into Ellis's skin. Ellis screamed... He watched in stunned horror as Mr. Little started to grow. His legs stretched. His torso could be measured in feet across rather than inches. He clutched Ellis like a tiny toy inside of his paw. With a sneer, he asked Ellis to feed him more. The child had been right. He did enjoy the fear of children and he'd been famished for weeks. Ellis tried to fight, but he couldn't. He screamed for help. But there was nothing but the trees to hear his cries. He was never seen again. The West Bengal government demanded that the headmasters of each school keep a daily diary. They're a fascinating glimpse into the bureaucracy of primary education in Kursyong. One of these diaries chronicles a prolonged conflict over an incident of cheating at cricket by a student called Ellis in 1905. The opposing coach, Mr. Little, accused Ellis' instructor, Mr. Sharp, of assisting the boy in his duplicity. The inspector of schools was called in to adjudicate, and Little eventually dropped his charges. There are also some entries that suggest that the school's surroundings had a strong impact on the minds of the young students. Several headmasters complained of issues with getting the boys to stay in their dormitories after dark. Some even considered blocking fire exits or confiscating their clothes in order to force them to stay inside. Several incidents of missing children are recorded in the diaries, and in some cases, the boys just disappear from the record with no indication of whether they were found. Their absence is simply noted. Up
1: next, Dow Hill Forest's mysterious little boy comes out to play. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all.
0: The road from central Kurseong to Dow Hill is simply called Dow Hill Road. It's heavily wooded, and the sun struggles to break through the tall, leafy trees and clouds, even outside of monsoon season. Mist floats along the path, making the eerie stillness even more arresting. The stretch of road from Dow Hill Road to the Dow Hill Forest Office is known as the Death Road. Though strangely, there are no recorded fatalities in the area, accidental or otherwise. Some say the British Raj covered all of them up, that murders and suicides have been happening secretly under the locals' noses. There is no evidence to support this. No concrete evidence, anyway. But there have been reports of whispers and screams that echo through this natural cathedral, drawing you down the road and further into the forest, and sometimes the spirits are seen as well as heard. The school was closed for the winter. Vijay preferred it that way. The handful of spoiled locals went back to their families, and the English kids found somewhere else to conquer for a few months. He watched his breath take shape in front of him, floating up toward the tree line. The air was cleaner here than at his old job in Delhi. He loved walking the grounds by himself, watching the wildlife. When school was in session, he had to deal with the taunts of children. They were all so keen to find a ghost that they liked to pretend he was one. They'd ignored his work around the grounds, claiming that the resident ghost must have cleaned things, They ran straight into him while playing cricket, as though he was a specter, not a flesh and blood man. It was exhausting to deal with them and their silly stories, but he loved the surrounding woods and the pay was good. The breaks were long enough that he could go find his center again while the students were gone. But one kid apparently refused to go home. VJ saw his head through the trees. The boy poked his face out between the trunks as if he were playing hide and seek. Then he disappeared. He reappeared a moment later, peering around the trunk of another tree. It was not Vijay's job to follow after children. From this distance, he couldn't tell if the child was wearing the school colors. He didn't want the boy to be his responsibility, so he stood halfway between the school and the forest waiting for him to wander off the property. The land was beautiful, but people could get lost easily. He heard stories of men losing their minds in the woods. If they were lucky, they were found half-starved with wide eyes and unexplained scratches on their bodies. If they weren't, their corpses were found instead, sunken mouths and bloated stomachs. Vijay had been called in before to assist with removing a body. Carrying a corpse through the dense forest was an arduous task, and he always felt like there were eyes on his back. He may not have liked children, but he couldn't bear the thought of carrying a still little body from the woods. He called out to the boy, warning him that the forest was dangerous for children. The boy turned and ran, disappearing between the trees. Vijay asked the gods for help as he walked toward the tree line. The air grew colder as he entered the forest. His breath appeared to almost crystallize in front of his lips before getting carried away by the wind. He yelled for the boy to show himself. Vijay pleaded that if the boy were nice, he would help him find his family and drop off some sweets at their house later in the week. A head peered around the corner of a tree, speaking softly. Vijay asked the child if he knew where his parents lived. The child laughed. To him, it was obvious. He lived here in the forest. Vijay took a deep breath and started again. Many of the kids consider the forest to be part of their home. He got more specific in his questions, asking if the child was lost. The child nodded his head. Vijay asked which direction the boy came from. The child, Grinned. He told V.J. that he knew where his home was, but he couldn't get there. Vijay hated the way children talked in riddles. Plain answers would be much easier. He asked the question the child was fishing for: Why couldn't the child get home? The child looked at him blankly, as if V. J. was the silly one. The boy explained that he clearly couldn't go back because he didn't have his body with him. Vijay opened his mouth to scold the child. He didn't like games. If the boy insisted on lying, he could find his own way home. The words died on Vijay's lips as the child's head floated softly away from the trunk. He really had no body. VJ rubbed at his eyes until they ached, but the child's head was still floating softly above the ground. The head bobbed up and down, laughing at the groundskeeper's distressed expression. VJ's legs shook as he tried to force them to move. This was not a child anymore. This was something else, and he wanted no part of it. He managed to turn and started to run. The child called out for him to wait. He couldn't move as fast as the man. VJ waved his hand in the air, shooing the child off. He was done with this, but the trees blocked his exit. The branches wove together in an immense tapestry. VJ brought his hand to the branches, trying to pull them away. As he pulled, a rogue twig slithered beneath one of his fingernails. He released the branches with a scream, clutching his hand. His fingernail lay on the ground. Small droplets of blood landed in the dirt. Vijay turned and ran back the way he'd come. The boy's head poked out from the trees around him. It insisted that he just needed to find his body, and everything would be all right. Vijay shook his head. He would not participate in this. He would find a way out. A vine slithered around his leg, pulling him to the fern-covered ground. Vijay tore at the plant with his bloody hands, but it was no use. The child asked one more time if Vijay was certain that he couldn't help. Vijay held his hands up. He told the child that he didn't bear him any ill will, but he really didn't know anything about it. The vine tightened. Another one poked out from the dirt and encircled his other leg. Larger branches curved towards him. Vijay wriggled around in the dirt, searching for anything that would save him. Something trailed up his back. Teeth bit into the base of his neck. His hands flew up to push the child away. But the child wasn't behind him. It was a series of vines with long, pointed ends. As he pulled them out, other vines climbed up and around his neck. The spiked edges dug deeper into his skin, stealing the breath from his throat. He wheezed that he would help the child find his body if it would stop this madness. The child rolled his eyes. He told Vijay that he had already moved on to a much better plan. He didn't have to find his own body anymore. He could take Vijay's instead. A specter of a headless boy has been reported in the halls of the Victoria School, heading to classes long after his untimely end. But the spirit appears to have made his way out onto the surrounding grounds, too. Locals walking alone on the so-called death road claim to have seen the animated corpse of a small boy who has been separated from his head. Some unlucky witnesses are said to be haunted by this vision, developing a state of chronic paranoia before dying by suicide. The legend of the headless schoolboy may have a connection to Bengal's shared memory of the violence that racked the territory when the British partitioned it in 1905. The move divided the region down the middle, disenfranchising the Bengali Hindu elites on both sides. A rush of nationalism and resistance to British rule followed, and extremists carried out shootings and bombings against the occupiers and Bengali Muslims, who now held significant sway. The region was reunited in 1911, but nationalist sentiment continued to spread. Many historians cite the partition of Bengal as one of the major missteps in the British Empire's attempt to hold on to India during its twilight years. The image of a dead schoolboy in a region dedicated to the education and relaxation of the British occupiers is particularly resonant in the light of the violence and oppression caused by colonial rule. Coming up, we meet the forest's last ghost. A familiar figure with a sinister twist. Now back to the story. Chris Young's population has ballooned in recent years to over 42,000 people. Yet in many ways, the bustling town remains unchanged from its days as a British Raj Hill Station. Much of the Victorian architecture still survives, and the tea gardens and orchids that define the region... Can still be found on the surrounding hillsides. These lands are protected by a group of foresters, and Dow Hill itself is host to several education programs in that discipline. It's a profession dominated by men, so the appearance of a woman in white standing in the woods is a little more than strange. Especially when her behavior is certainly not becoming of a good Victorian lady. Five years ago, Zoe's father had left his family behind for the chance to work in Darjeeling. She hadn't seen him since. He seemed to have become a different person. Her only window into his life were his sporadically updated social media accounts. Then she'd turned 18 and he'd sent her a plane ticket. An urgent plea to reconnect, to come visit him, to understand who he was now. Her mother opposed it but something told her that this was her only chance. She eventually wore her mother down and flew to Bagdogra Airport near Darjeeling. It was the first step in the journey and she never felt more adult. She was ready to step into a Wes Anderson film. However, she was very much not ready for the crush of people or the railway culture, Not even an hour into her journey, Zoe had accidentally knocked over a chai seller's stack of glass cups in her confusion. She'd handed over as many rupees as she could, but it didn't appease him. She couldn't blame the man. She'd ruined his business for the day. She fixated on the incident as the crowded city started to fall away to large patches of lush, green countryside. Zoe had trouble understanding the announcements but she guessed that they were nearing Dow Hill Station. She waded through the crowd of people to get off the train. A woman in all white greeted her. Zoe may not have known much about the culture, but she had read somewhere that wearing all white could be the sign of attending a cremation ceremony. Her heart skipped a beat. No, she couldn't have traveled all this way to find out that her father was dead. The woman introduced herself as Pooja and quickly reassured her. While Zoe was correct about her attire, in this case she'd got the wrong idea. Zoe's father was fine. He was just busy. He'd sent Pooja to meet her instead. Zoe walked alongside the woman in silence as they left the railway station and made their way through the town toward the forest her father hadn't even sent her an address, so she wasn't sure where they were going. They passed by a brightly painted wrought iron gate, guarding a massive purple building with yellow trim. Now that looked more like something from Wes Anderson's brain. Zoe asked who lived there. Pooja shook her head. She said students lived there during the school year, but no one lived there full time. Zoe's eyes lingered on the school as they kept walking into the woods. She never expected her father to want to live somewhere so remote. India had changed him even more than she'd expected. Puja led Zoe deeper into the forest until the canopy swallowed up the sunlight. Zoe paused. She couldn't see her father living in a treehouse maybe she shouldn't have been trusting a stranger to guide her. Pooja placed a hand on Zoe's shoulder. She told Zoe that there were several homes in the woods. Zoe didn't like it, but she followed anyway. Personally, she hated nature, but her dad had been the weekend hiking type, and this made a strange kind of sense for a midlife crisis. If he was there waiting for her, then she needed to trust her guide and keep going. The woods were silent. No insects buzzing around their heads. No snakes slithering through the trees. No birdsong. There didn't seem to be a single living creature in this supposed conservation area, but Zoe could feel someone watching her each time she turned her head to check if it was puja she saw her guide staring straight ahead still zoe kept walking scanning the trees for any signs of life there weren't any A chill shook her body an entire forest couldn't be dead A pair of red eyes met Zoe's as she stared up at the large branches. Zoe jumped backwards. Pooja kept walking. Zoe called for Pooja to stop. She wanted to know what these red eyes were, if she should be scared. They glowed brightly, but Zoe couldn't see any actual face behind them. Pooja turned stiffly and walked back towards Zoe. There was now something different about the guide's face. Her skin was hanging loosely off of her bones, leaving a blue, sticky gel as it separated. Pooja's irises shifted from a soft brown to a piercing crimson. Zoe took a step backward, feeling her back hit the bark of a tree. She felt the small, fuzzy legs of spiders crawling on her neck. Whatever had kept those creatures hidden earlier, had finally let them loose. She swiped at the spiders on her skin. Fresh webbing clung to her hands. Zoe placed her hand against the bark, trying to scrape the spiders off. But she didn't have enough time. She pulled herself free and took off running. As she glanced behind her, she saw Pooja's sunken red eyes staring back at her. The guide walked slowly like she had all the time in the world. Zoe yelled for her father. If he lived here, like Pooja had said, maybe he could hear her calling for help. Or had that been a lie? Pooja answered her ignorant questions in the past, so Zoe went for broke and asked the woman in the white outfit if her father did actually live here, or if this had all been a ruse. In an unexpected show of kindness, Pooja did answer back. She told Zoe that her father did live here. He didn't live in a house, though. Zoe's eyes went back to the large branches of the trees. The disembodied red eyes were still staring at her. Could that be him? She pulled her gaze away from the canopy and kept her eyes straight ahead. She could outpace Pooja at her current speed, but she didn't know the land well enough to know where to go. Her feet stumbled over a dirt-covered lump, bringing her crashing to the forest floor. Zoe dusted herself off and prepared to keep going, but she noticed a brown loafer sticking out from the dirt. Something squeezed at her heart. She knew she should have kept going, but if she was going to die here, she needed to know. She knelt down on the ground and started to clear away the dirt from the shoe. It was attached to a foot, which was in turn attached to a body. He was older, softer, suntanned. But it was her father. She knew it, even though his face was unrecognizable. Thick white webs had sealed over the eyes and mouth. Some sort of liquid clung to his skin. She looked up to find that the guide had disappeared, a branch cracked behind her. Zoe tried to get back up to her feet, but a heavy weight landed on her shoulders. She got one good look at Pooja's red eyes and her fuzzy fangs before she felt them pierce into her skin. Zoe lost the ability to move. Pooja's eyes seemed to multiply in front of her. She felt something wet hit her face. And then... She could see nothing but a haze of white over her vision. The rest of the world disappeared, leaving only her tortured breathing and the forest's silence as the creature began to feed. (laughs) Apparitions of women in white often seem to be a dime a dozen in European castles. But the color white signifies something very different in India. While white was a frequent sign of purity for the British occupiers and was frequently connected with marriage, white is a color for funerals in India. In such a color-saturated culture, the absence of color signifies a disconnection from daily life. It's frequently worn by widows to indicate mourning. No one can quite agree on the race or clothing of Dow Hill's Woman in White. She may appear as a proper Victorian teacher or an Indian widow mourning her husband in the violence that followed Bengal's partition. She's a common ghost archetype, with culturally specific markers that change based on the viewer. Perhaps she takes the form you will most fear, the clearest threat you can understand. For regardless of her clothing or race, she does more than scream. She's known to chase people through the woods. There's a certain unearthliness to the remote natural places of the world. Dowhill Forest combines this eerie natural aura with the evidence of India's British occupation. In many ways, Kersiang would not exist without the influence of the British. Like every hill station, it was designed to service the occupier's needs, not the native populations. This leaves Dow Hill in a constant push-pull between old and new, oppressed and oppressor, nature and so-called civilization. The forest ghosts reflect this, the walking corpse of a victorious school student a Victorian woman or Indian widow in white, and of course, a red-eyed monster lurking in the darkness, ready to spring. Each supernatural entity is weighted with meaning, and it's easy to see them as artifacts of India's complicated history. Perhaps the specters lurking along the death road are only metaphorical. But are you willing to risk it? Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Haunted Places for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil Ritter and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson.